Hello and welcome to Telling the Unknown, episode 17. I'm your host, Ruben Wright, and I'm joined by my guest, the Dr. Roosevelt Rick Wright. And on uh, the day after D-Day, June 6th, uh, we're here on June 7th, uh, Friday, June 7th. And we thought we'd do a, uh, an episode commemorating D-Day and African Americans that served in D-Day. Uh, you know, it, if someone doesn't know what D-Day is, I guess we could start there. Uh, 1944, the invasion of, uh, of France by the U.S., uh, British, uh, French forces, Polish forces, pretty much all the Allied forces into German-occupied France. Um, so essentially today what we wanted to cover is very much from a, an American's per- perspective, talking about those African-American uh, voices and those Amer- African-American men who participated in D-Day and uh, all the uh, Allied efforts essentially um, in, in, in commemorating and, and show, showcasing their, uh, their stories, stories that are very much unknown when you look at the popular portrayal of D-Day. Most likely you'll see the, uh, the Saving Private Ryan's, uh, the, the, the Longest Day, things like that, very much from a, a, a Caucasian uh, perspective. And we thought we'd talk a little bit more about the minority perspective, uh, many of which who served um, you know, in the various aspects of the actual preparation of D-Day, the actual uh, launch and mission of D-Day, and of course the after-action uh, uh, missions and, and reports that, that really you know, led to the fall of German-held uh, Europe. So today, uh, without further ado, I'll hand over my guest so we can start and get right into it. Well, Ruben, thank you so much for inviting me again on your dynamic podcast as you present uh, educational information of major importance to our audiences listening all over the country and all over the world. Yesterday, today is the 7th of June, the year 2019, and yesterday was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which basically happened on the 6th of June, 1944. And um, while uh, thinking about the day, I was uh, basically, the day before D-Day, thinking about what I should do in thoughts with regards to the remembrance of D-Day activities, being a United States Naval Captain and also a member of the United States Army years ago. And uh, basically, the uh, messaging system lit up. God works in mysterious ways. And I got a message from Captain Mary McAdams, who is the executive vice president of the National Naval Officers Association. And she had received the message from Admiral Sinclair Harris, who is the president of NNOA, indicating we need to do something to commemorate and to recognize D-Day on our national and international website. So I received the message from Captain Mike Adams, and I said, oh, yeah, okay, yes. And then all of a sudden, Ruben, you know, you look at the blank page, and you wonder, what am I going to say? And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought about, you know, being a really avid uh, lover of uh, war movies and, of course, military history, I thought back and I said, hold it. African Americans are never portrayed in any of the major movies about D-Day. And, of course, I thought back through my um, humble uh, cognitive library of thought, and I said, hold it. In the longest day that was done by a great uh, film director and movie mongol who I met years ago, and I think I talked about this on a podcast of recent uh, era on your show, uh, Mr. Darrell F. Zynett, who was president of 20th Century Fox. And, of course, I met him in the hotel, in the lobby of the Hotel DuPont back in 1971 when I was going back to Syracuse. But that's another story. I think we talked that story before. But still, I thought about him. 
And I said, oh, I wish I could have had a chance to talk to Mr. Daryl F. Zinet, who was president of 20th Century Fox, who was a producer of The Longest Day, which is considered to be one of the most, uh, along with Saving Private Ryan, that we'll bring up, and you've already brought it up, as one of the most, uh, you know, it would say, biographical, dramatic sketches of the real, true uh, scenario and timeline of uh, D-Day, you know, with Admiral, with General Dwight Eisenhower and all the other guys trying to make a decision on when to launch the attack from England. Well, I thought, I said, hold it. I have never really seen any African Americans portrayed in, even in a Saving Private Ryan that really showed the carnage and up close and personal what happened on D-Day as the guys were coming ashore. And then for years, I have always seen the photographs of D-Day, and especially after we had already got to the shores, and of course, um, you know, things hadn't settled down, but we were unloading, you know, all of the ships and everything. And then I said, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of a, of a battle site, Omaha Beach, the beaches. you see seen those big balloons, the big gigantic balloons that are all launched. And these balloons are used to set up a netting, a, a, an aerial barrier and screen for aircraft. In this case, German aircraft that would come down to uh, basically shoot up the troops. Uh, when, we, when the uh, British forces at Dunkirk got you know, basically pushed off the beaches of France in 1940, one of the things that helped them to get defeated was German aircraft. So in the invasion of uh, Normandy, the, our strategy was also to put up a system that would basically not allow the German aircraft to come and shoot up the beaches and further you know, offer an offensive force for the German army against the Allied forces coming ashore. So these big uh, blimp, I mean, these are monster balloons that are all floating over the battle site. And I said, hold it. Most people don't realize that those balloons were put up by African-American soldiers. And then, of course, I said, okay, the blank piece of paper and what I need to write for the National Naval Officer Association website, it came out to, to be this particular article that I would read now. And I received, even last night at a uh, planning meeting, conference call, many of my colleagues in the National Naval Officer Association were giving me these real big salute on this article. And I thought it was a pretty good piece, but I was kind of concerned because I kind of not threw it together, but I did it based on research that I've known over the years, but finally had a chance to tell this story. And also, after the... Uh, article was published on the National Naval Officer Association website, I received a whole lot of emails. In fact, I just got an email from your cousin, uh, Tyus Few, down in North Carolina, where I had basically sent the link to him on the letter and also wrote a short passage that I'll read a little later about your family and participants who served in the U.S. Armed Forces during World War II and were in the military on that day of December 6th. That is, excuse me, the 7th, I'm thinking about Pearl Harbor when I mentioned December, but uh, the 6th of June, 1944. The article that I wrote for the National Naval Officer Association is on the website, and everybody can read it, and I'll give you the link to it, is an NNOA Remembrance of D-Day, an NNOA 75th Remembrance of D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944. An Unknown Perspective is the title by yours truly, Roosevelt R. Wright, Jr., Captain, United States Navy, Reserve, Retired. As we commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day, 
the 6th of June, 1944, the National Naval Officers Association would like to present a major Bravo Zulu to the veterans living and dead who participated in Operations Overlord. This amphibious invasion of the shores of France at Normandy was fought to bring a massive assault to the Axis powers of Europe. In this air and sea campaign, composing of thousands of soldiers, airmen, naval, and Coast Guard personnel, African-American membership was over 2,000 participants. Although participation of African-American servicemen was relegated to service units of quartermasters, engineers, transportation, and mess attendants, we must remember that African-American service members did serve in demanding combat roles. In making a historical analysis of the contributions of African-Americans in combat roles, most writers of the era have placed a, quote, level of invisibility, end quote, to this effort. But there is an unknown perspective of combat contributions of African-American personnel on that fateful day that many historians call the longest day. Operation Overlord was the major code name for this operation, but the Naval and Coast Guard effort was entitled Operations Neptune. Serving on board the many naval ships and Coast Guard cutters were African-American sailors who were part of those crews. For example, Seaman John Roberts of the United States Coast Guard served as part of the crew of the USS LCI-93, and LCI stands for Landing Craft Infantry, and these were the Higgins boats that were built in New Orleans, Louisiana, that basically carried troops to the shore. And you've seen the ramp that has dropped down, and as the... Uh, Soldiers were coming out, especially you saw this in the movie Saving Private Ryan, where the guys were getting shot as soon as they got off and killed. And also on that day, continuing my article, Seaman John Roberts was injured as they delivered infantry soldiers to Omaha Beach. Also on board, Coast Guard man LCVPs, uh, these are landing craft of uh, various personnel, LSTs, which stands for Landing Ship Tanks, and there were 83-foot Coast Guard cutters that were used because their a draft allowed them to get close into the beach. African-American seamen were performing extraordinary duties during the height of this mammoth environment of battle and human carnage. Further, combat action can also be attributed to the gallant work of African-American sailors who were serving as mainly mess cooks and stewards on board the vast array of battleships, cruisers, destroyers, transports, and supply ships of the naval fleet. On board a Coast Guard man LCT, which stands for Landing Craft Tank, combat history was made when the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion an all-African-American Army combat unit was delivered to the shores of Omaha Beach. This unit was trained to launch large balloons with bombs in them. This enabled an array of sky-flying balloons 
floating in a manner to stop German aircraft from attacking the troops landing on the beach. One of the many heroes that day was African-American Corporal Waverly B. Woodson, Jr., United States Army medic who, despite serious injuries, set up a hospital on Omaha Beach, worked for 30 straight hours, and provided medical care for hundreds of seriously wounded combat soldiers of all races and creeds. There are many unknown stories of African-American service members who participated in the horrific events of 6 June 1944, but on this day, the 75th anniversary of that fateful day, the National Naval Officers Association membership would like to, quote, simply honor their sacrifices and struggle, end quote, during a period of racial discrimination in World War II within the ranks of the U.S. Armed Forces. May we continue the remembrance of D-Day to the ranks of those that served and fought, who are all passing away to heaven, as many are now in the 90th year of their birth. By yours truly, Dr. Rick Wright, Captain United States Navy, for the NNOA site. Now, this was a D-Day, and, and of course, this commemoration appeared on the National Naval Officers Association website. But now, Ruben, let's go and look at an analysis of what I just wrote. And of course, a lot of times you try to write something short and sweet, which I did. But as we look at D-Day, I mean, and of course, uh, there had to be you no know, major preparations for D-Day. In fact, a diversionary um, army was put together in which uh, General George S. Patton was told to just stay in England and walk around with a whole lot of troops. And we set up dummy airplanes and tanks and everything because the um, Germans thought the attack was going to come at the port of Calais, which is really the most narrow part of the English Channel separating France from England. Well, all the preparations are going on. Now, the battle was on the 6th of June, but you know, and in common sense will tell you that preparation had to take place going back many days, months, and years for that particular day. Also, to lay out the picture for what we're dealing with at this time, we were dealing with a segregated military. That is, the sadness of this is that the United States military at war, all of its military branches were basically using segregated units. And by segregated units, we mean all African-Americans. Of course, in other cases, and things did change in and during World War II to allow African-Americans to serve, you know, in other areas. But basically, we were in stevedore and supply and cargo and loading capacities, which were basically the engineering branch of the United States Army. So the point I'm indicating is that the ships that were being loaded with all of the personnel and supplies and bombs and weapons of war were basically done by who? African-American personnel. And of course, as you look at the preparations for D-Day, you never see any of this in photographs and writings, but that's what we are here to explain and to do something about today. As we look at England, there are many stories of all the African-Americans who came to England uh, getting ready for the invasion of Europe and how they were treated much better by the British than they were treated by their own American citizenry when they are back in the United States. Now, one person in particular, and I would like to talk about his life, 
beautiful brother from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, named Corporal Waverly P. Woodson, Jr., who is today buried in Arlington National Cemetery. This young brother was in college at the time, and I think he was at Lincoln University. I have to recheck that, though, since he being from Philadelphia. But, of course, when the war broke out, you know, as people were being drafted and all, he decided to join the United States Army. The brother was a brilliant brother, and he took, of course, the Army's uh, tests, the officer tests, and he did receive a chance to go to OCS uh, in the United States Army. And he went to the artillery branch of the officer candidate school, I think at Fort Rally out in Texas. And here's what happened to this beautiful brother. After finishing OCS, which was Army Artillery, and of course uh, most African Americans were not going to become artillery officers, and I think many of the Army officers of the United States Army were infantry officers, he completed OCS, and guess what happened to him? They said they couldn't give him his commission because they didn't have a billet for him. And so they transferred him to the medical corps, and there he was trained as a medic. And of course, uh, he was assigned to the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion. And these guys also were trained, I think, out at Fort Riley, uh, Kansas. And of course, their role was to basically learn how to launch and fly these big balloons. Now, we're not talking about little balloons that you buy at the New York State Fair or some great fair park or a balloon that you buy for celebrating somebody's birthday or anniversary. We're talking about some gigantic balloons. These things, some are probably as much as two and 300 feet in length. And, of course, they carried bombs. But they were basically launched on steel cables. There's a whole launching system that had to be learned, you know, wind vectors and all to get the balloons up. And their particular design was to be able to set up basically an array, a sky web barrier over a battle site so that aircraft, uh, you know, the German um, Lucas uh, Stukers or bombers or whatever could not come in and attack the troops on the beach. If they did, they would run into these balloons and the balloons would explode and blow the planes up. This, as you look at those battlefields, those balloons over D-Day, were set up by African-American, African-Americans, Army soldiers who basically had to learn the whole technology of flying those balloons. It was a 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion. Now, Corporal Waverly B. Woodson Jr. was a medic, and a medic's role is to be ready. They wear a cross on their helmets. They wear crosses on their arms. And their role is to be able to try to save troops that they are getting shot up and wounded in battle. Now, the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion had to be delivered from where? England, all the way across the English Channel, and land on the beaches of Normandy under fire. The United States Coast Guard, if you look at an analysis of uh, naval and Coast Guard fleet operations, just about all of the landing craft, the LSTs, the LCIs, the LCTs, were all manned by United States Coast Guard personnel. Of course, the Coast Guard is our smallest branch of the military, and the Coast Guard also had a big high level of integration among its uh, um, members, even before the United States Navy, if we look at Coast Guard history. Well, any of those Coast Guard manned uh, LSTs, LCIs that were bringing the troops to ground were also piloted by Coast Guardsmen. 
Now, the LCT that brought the 320th uh, Barrage Balloon Battalion ashore were all African-Americans on a whole ship all by themselves due to what? Racial discrimination in the United States Army. Under fire, then, of course, as this invasion takes place, Omaha Beach, and there were other landing spots, too, at Normandy, the Germans were throwing everything they had at, a, at that particular time. And, of course, again, we go back and look at movies like Saving Private Ryan, which really shows up close and person, personal a depiction of the battle going on and the blood flying. Now, as the troops of the uh, brothers of the 320th were being launched on the shores of Normandy and under fire, Corporal Waverly B. Whitson was shot. In fact, he was shot in the leg, and I think he just blood and bleeding. He basically fixed himself up. And with this battle going on and thousands of troops coming in, under enemy firing conditions, the worst particular scenario of combat one could imagine, he set up a daggone medical station. And of course, this medical station that he set up, and he himself hurt and injured, he went to work carrying out the principles of armies, duty, honor, and country. And he sat there, and as young men were getting shot and killed and maimed, he was bringing them into his medical center there on the beach at Omaha, and basically he saved over, my God, they say over maybe three or 400 soldiers. Now, he worked for 30 straight hours, 30 straight hours. How many hours in a day? 24? Mm -hmm. Let's make a comparison. 30 straight hours, Corporal Waverly B. Woodson Jr. sat there and, of course, saved all of these particular uh, incredible troops. Now, after the battle was over, there was documentation on the incredible efforts and exploits that Waverly B. Woodson Jr. had accomplished on that day with the 320th Balloon Barrage Battalion. He was recommended to receive the Medal of Honor and to be hopefully awarded by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the White House. It never happened. They lost his paperwork, all kind of excuses were came up, and they call it basically overt racism. Also, as we look at an analysis of World War II with over a million African-American personnel serving in World War II, not one African-American received the Medal of Honor. A rectification of this did occur, did occur that is, under President, uh, uh, President uh, Clinton's administration in that seven brothers finally did receive the Medal of Honor. But a person whose name was omitted and did not receive was Waverly B. Whitson, Jr., when uh, Private Henry Johnson of World War I fame finally received the Medal of Honor being presented by President Barack Obama, as he presented the Medal of Honor to uh, the memory of Private Henry Johnson, hero of World War I, he mentioned that it is now time for Sergeant Waverly B. Whitson, Jr., who is buried in Arlington National Cemetery, to finally receive the Medal of Honor. And yesterday, uh, on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the Congressional Black Caucus of the Congress of the United States of America reintroduced legislation for this to occur. As we look at this era of D-Day, the 75th anniversary, and the hidden history and hidden perspective of the documentation of African Americans, we also must remember that 
you know, who, who basically unloaded the ships? Who were the guys who basically loaded up the boats? Who were the guys who were working to get weapon systems and supplies to the shores? They were African Americans. And of course, we look at this picture, we never see African Americans in that role, but that's what they were specifically doing that day. I picked up another article, beautiful brother, World War II veteran, Johnny Jones Jr. And of course, there's a picture that was in, this is a, an Associated Press story, poses for a portrait at his home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana on May 28, 2019. World War II veteran Johnny Jones Jr., who joined the military in 1943 out of Southern University in Baton Rouge, was a warrant officer. And of course, his unit was responsible for what? Unloading equipment and supplies onto Normandy. This Associated Press article says, of course, this massive amphibious invasion was the greatest the world has ever seen. Tens of thousands of Allied troops spread out over the air and sea, aiming to get a toehold, of course, into this final assault on Nazi Germany. And again, as I indicated in my article, historians have sort of a, a what can I say, an era of uh, invisibility in that we've just got kind of written out of it as if we were not there. Well, we indicated that over 2,000 African Americans did serve. We talked about the incredible exploits of Sergeant Waverly Woodson Jr., medic. And of course, he did not live to see the 75th anniversary. He died just a couple of years ago, I think 2005, and he is buried at Omaha Beach. And of course, uh, LCT, I'm sure his Coast Guard man, LST, as we indicated earlier, did have Coast uh, African-American personnel on board. Another member of the unit, William Damney, said that as these African-American brothers of the 320th were coming aboard, quote, he said, the firing was furious on the beach. I was picking up dead bodies and I was looking at the mines blowing up soldiers. I didn't know if I was going to make it or not, says Private William Dapney, United States Army. And at that time, uh, in 2009, he was 84 years old, and he died just last year. Another African-American brother who didn't live to see the trip to Normandy on the 75th anniversary. A Incredible writer, Linda Herovix, has written a book called The Untold Story of D-Day's Black Heroes at Home and at War. And in this book, she says that the military resisted efforts to desegregate as it ramped up for World War II. Instead, they kept separate units and separate facilities for black and white troops. Quote, this was a very expensive and inefficient way to run an army. The army could have ordered its men to integrate and to treat black soldiers as fully equal partners in this war. The army declined to do so. The army wanted to focus on the war and didn't want to become a social experiment. 
The writer notes that when African-American, Linda, our great writer, said that when African-American soldiers were called on to fight side by side with whites, they did so with no problems. We also must realize that Johnny Jones, 90 years old, joined the Army in 1943, which is the year of your dad's birth, Reuben, coming up 76 this year was a warrant officer, a warrant officer. And as a warrant officer, he was not assigned to an infantry combat unit, but assigned to a unit responsible for unloading equipment, cargo, and supplies. Now, if an army doesn't have equipment, cargo, and supplies, they can't function, right? Well, they did function due to the incredible efforts of African-American soldiers. Private Johnson said that um, he remembers wading ashore and coming under fire from a German sniper. Johnny Jones, that is, Warren Officer Jones, sorry for the rank description there as I think about this and give this broadcast today, but Warren Officer Jones said that he came and grabbed his weapon and then fired along with the other soldiers. It's something that still haunts his memory. Now, of course, the brothers always said they weren't in combat, but here's a brother, warrant officer, unloading supplies along with all his other men, and, of course, they're being shot. He grabs a white a rifle, and he starts shooting. He said he remembers waiting ashore and coming under fire from a German sniper. He grabbed his weapon and returned fire along with the other soldiers. He said it's something that still haunts his memories as long as he lived. He quoted, and I can still see him. I see him every night. In another incident, he remembers a soldier charging a pillbox, a selfish act that ended the soldier's life. I know he didn't come back home. He didn't come back home, but he saved me, and he saved many others, and he was an African-American soldier. After defending their country in Europe, many African-American troops were met with discrimination yet at home. Can you imagine, to all of our listeners to this podcast, you are an African-American soldier, naval, coast guard, marine, or serving as a serviceman in any branch. You fought the battle, D-Day, Normandy. You lived to get through it. And then eventually you are time and come back and your trip to Europe during World War II is over and you come back home to the United States. And these great African-American heroes of D-Day, June 6, 1944, after doing their best to stay alive and to uphold the defense of the United States of America, they come back home after the war and found that they still had to move to the back of the bus, the bus of racial discrimination separate restrooms, separate balconies in movie theaters, lunch counters, restaurants, sleeping quarters, hotels, everything discriminated still, and you have done all of this incredible work for your country. And of course, we also have the horror story of even African-American soldiers who came back in World War II, who were lynched in their uniforms. Some of these same brave African-Americans that appeared at D-Day on the 7th of June, 1944. 
under incredible carnage of human battle and sacrifice. And of course, um, Warrant Officer Johnny Jones in this piece I found said, quote, I couldn't sit with the soldiers I had been on the battlefield with. I had to go to the back of the bus. Warrant Officer Johnny Jones Sr. became a lawyer and a civil rights activist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And he said, those are things that come back and they haunt you. So a bit of a hidden perspective, and there are many other stories, but to bring this to the attention of our great listeners and the people of our great country, that when you see and look at the depictions of World War II and D-Day, as we celebrate the 75th anniversary of D-Day on this year of 2019, just remember, when you look at the movies, The Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, there are many other movies. Ask yourself a question. Where were the African-American soldiers, sailors, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen in that battle? They were there. And, of course, the rectification is what we have to do today is to talk about it, write about it, and train and educate our audiences of the world that our folk were there. Fighting Germans and Jim Crow, the role of African-American troops, D-Day, 1944. Ruby, you have a question for me? And I have another side of this that i like to bring a Syracuse perspective as we do this broadcast from Syracuse, New York. No, no question. Nothing question? Well, to look at this in another perspective and bring it home, I would like to bring up the wall of honor that is here in Syracuse, New York. A number of years ago, roughly in the early um, part of the year 2000, 2001, a number of African-American servicemen, some who had fought at D-Day, and had told me about their exploits of being in the 320th Balloon Barrage Battalion, had indicated that uh, one day they went down to the War Memorial Auditorium here in Syracuse, New York, and they notice all the names of the participants, members of the armed forces who had served in World War II. And also, um, that is, you know, the Pacific uh, campaigns and the European campaigns. And these were members who were born and raised and raised here in Syracuse and Onondaga County. And so they were looking for their names on the wall. And they didn't see their names. And not seeing their names on the wall at the War Memorial here in Syracuse, these African-American veterans of World War II came to me and said, we, we, we try to find. So at that time, the county executive of uh, Onondaga County was contacted, and we, the question was raised. And this was the answer that was given to the African-American veterans who had lived here in Syracuse for the last 50 or 60 years at that time. They were told that because they were not born in Onondaga County and Syracuse, New York, that their names could not appear. But they were veterans. And, of course, as they got older, they felt very saddened with this. And, of course, uh, what it basically meant was that after World War II, many African-American uh, veterans came north to find and to seek jobs. Of course, the... Industrial giants were based in northern cities like Syracuse. 
Uh, Syracuse at that time and after World War II was an industrial powerhouse, the set of making typewriters. Hey, you ever heard of a typewriter guy? Okay, typewriters. And, of course, General Electric was here making uh, advanced electronics and really laying the foundation for the development of television. So General Electric, the Carrier Corporation is here building air conditioners. Bristol Labs also was here. They made all kinds of medicines for the armed forces, especially penicillin during World War II. And, of course, General Motors made parts for cars, Chrysler, of course, big beer manufacturers. And Syracuse technically was rocking. So many African-American veterans who had gotten out of the military after serving in World War II did not go back home to the South to live. And, of course, this is the 1940s, basically due to racial discrimination and really the hopelessness of getting a job to be able to feed their families. So they moved north. And Syracuse, New York, along with other northern cities, became the new home and location of these wonderful veterans who served their country in World War II. And that was the reason their names were not added to the war memorial here in Syracuse. So I indicated and I said, hey, well, why don't we create our own wall of honor? And I would like to um, commemorate on this 75th anniversary of D-Day and bring back the quick story of the wall of honor here in Syracuse that was dedicated on Saturday, August 27, 2005 at the convention center at the On Center here in Syracuse, New York. In this particular um, program, the Wall of Honor project background, World War II was a war to end all wars. However, it did not end segregation, nor did it provide equality or recognition for minority veterans who served our county and country with pride and dignity. It is a fact that World War II minority veterans served in an environment of segregation and discrimination. They served in separate units, ate and slept in separate barracks, and were denied promotions. In short, they were forced to endure unfair conditions and practices while serving their country. It is an irony that these brave men and women were denied the very freedoms they were fighting for yet they continued to serve and did so with honor. Following the war, their contributions were intentionally overlooked and ignored by media and the history textbooks. Additionally, these forgotten veterans were denied the military honors they were entitled to receive. The objects of this project was to establish a monument to inscribe the names of our forgotten veterans living and deceased, as testimony to their contributions to the World War II Allied victory, which paved the way for freedom enjoyed by Americans today, regardless of race, creed, or class. On May 23, 2000, the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives unanimously passed a joint resolution establishing the Day of Honor for World War II Minority Veterans. It was the first time in the history of America that the Congress passed a resolution recognizing and honoring the military service of minorities. On July 20, 2001, our friends at the Syracuse VA Medical Center 
hosted an outstanding day of honor celebration in Syracuse. However, when the music and the accolades ended, local World War II minority veterans felt strongly that they deserve a lasting tribute to serve as testimony to their sacrifices and extraordinary service to our country. Onondaga County legislation states that names of veterans included on the Onondaga County War Memorial Honor Roll must show their resident of record at the time of enlistment of enlistment was indeed Onondaga County. Because most of our Onondaga County World War II minority veterans lived outside this county when they enlisted into the military, they are disqualified from having their names included in the war memorial. A steering committee consisted of a broadly based body of representatives for the diverse populations in our community was formed to facilitate the construction of the Onondaga County War War II Minority Veterans Wall of Honor. The steering committee members were committed to build a civic, educational, and cultural symbol of patriotism and love from a grateful and deeply caring community. The committee that put this project together were as follows. Ms. Lovey L. Winslow, Chair, Onondaga County Legislator of the 19th District. And of course, uh, Ms. Lovey Winslow was a member of the United States Air Force, and she has passed to heaven. Direct Branch Treasurer, Vice President of the Community Commercial Loans Department of Pardoners Trust Bank at that time. Mr. Peter D. Chrissy, Chrissy Architectural Group, an adjunct professor at Syracuse University. Mr. Gordon Scalar, who was head of public relations for the Veterans VA Medical Center. The late Mr. Odie Friedman, who was social work executive, minority veterans program manager of the Syracuse VA Medical Center. Mr. Joel DeMonico, vice president, market manager for then Clear Channel Radio, now iHeart Radio, was on the steering committee. Ms. Barbara A. Miller, who was the Business Development Director, Clear Channel Radio, now iHeart Radio. Mr. Thomas P. Davis, Jr., Sylvia Seuss Cazell, Robin Michner, Jerry Gallinger, President and CEO of On Center Complex. Mr. Eric Schutzer, Director of Facilities Administration for the On Center Complex. And yours truly, Roosevelt Rick Wright, Jr., Ph.D., Captain, United States Navy, Professor at Syracuse University in the Newhouse School, were the members of the steering committee that basically put into efforts to get the Wall of Honor established here in Syracuse. The following World War II veterans are known as the Fateful Few because of their commitment to the completion of this project. They attended steering committee meetings regularly, got involved in the planning of events, made public appearances, visited area schools, churches, and synagogues for the purpose of relating insightful, comprehensive, personal accounts of their war efforts and experience. Many of these members have now passed and are deceased, but Mr. Cecil C. Cooper, United States Navy, World War II veteran, is alive and well on this 20 year of 19. 
And I would read the other names. Some of these members have deceased, but I will just give their names in recognition on this broadcast. Mr. Albert A. Tarbell, United States Army, World War II veteran. Mr. Charles W. Lathan, United States Navy, World War II veteran. Excuse me, Mr. Charles W. Lathan was United States Army. The Reverend Arthur L. Todd, though, was United States Navy, World War II veteran. And uh, Mrs. Jose Emma Pascoaga, United States Navy, World War II veteran. Freeman Fitch, United States Army, World War II veteran. Joseph Thompson, Jr., United States Army, World War II veteran. David Loretta, Jr., United States Navy, World War II veteran. Mr. Jesse C. Simpson, United States Army, World War II veteran. William C. Pierce, United States Navy, World War II veteran. Eugene Blue, United States Army, World War II veterans. Names are listed on the Wall of Honor. Many other names, but as I get ready to close out this segment that we have had today honoring the unknown hidden perspective of the 75th anniversary of D-Day, that was an incredible battle of invasion on the shores of France. For all those who served but did not receive worthy recognition is really the theme of our broadcast today. But I will say that on that Saturday, August 27, 2005, we had an incredible program to dedicate the Wall of Honor that you can now see. Just simply go into the On Center, downtown Syracuse, New York, and it'll be to your right. And all the names are inscribed in gold. It's a beautiful marble, uh, incredible monument and memorial that will be there for the end of time, hopefully, here in Syracuse. But on that night, Mr. Joel Monaco, the vice president and market manager of then Clear Channel Radio and iHeart Media, did the opening remarks, the presentation of colors by the Dunbar American Legion Post 1642, which is an all-African-American American Legion Post here in Syracuse. I presented the colors that day, Captain Wright, Navy. The national anthem was sung by Ryan McConnell. We had an invocation from the Onondaga Nation's Chief Sid Hill. The Reverend Alfonso Davis, pastor at that time, the United Baptist Church, Gunnery Sergeant, United States Marine Corps, did the invocation. We had a nice tribute and scenes of World War II to try to show African-American major participation in World War II. And of course, uh, Mr. Odie Freeman, the late Mr. Odie Freeman, who was a major power at the Veterans Administration Hospital, was uh, basically gave a wall of honor, the journey, and how this particular event happened. And then probably the greatest moment of the night, or one of the other great moments, was reflections from Navy Seaman Petty Officer Cecil C. Cooper. Mr. Cooper, United States Navy veteran of World War II, sang and gave a really hard-feeling presentation that day at his reflections of what had finally happened in getting those names engraved on the wall of honor. Musical selection of Thea Fitch Chaplin that night. And then, of course, we had a guest speaker, Miss Lucretia McNeely, who was the acting director of Center for Minority Veterans, who were representing the Secretary of the Veterans Administration, Washington, D.C., on that night. And our keynote speaker, dear friend, Tuskegee University graduate, the late Rear Admiral Mac C. Gaston, United States Navy, 
who was retired at that particular time, and Reverend, that is, Admiral Matt Gaston became the first African-American commanding officer of Great Lakes, the Great Lakes Naval Training Center, where every sailor gets their training and also was in that area where the Golden 13, the first African-American naval officers, received their training and commission. That was, and then, of course, retiring of the colors after benediction by the Reverend Alphonse Davis and closing remarks today from Mr. Joel DeMonico, who was head of Clear Channel Radio, now iHeart Media here in Syracuse. The retiring of the colors, the Dunbar American Legion Post, 1642, on that Saturday, August 27th, year 252005, was our day of remembrance. I would like to just tie those factors together as we close out our podcast today as we remember the 75th anniversary of D-Day, that incredible invasion of Normandy, Omaha beaches, and others, and that there was heavy and major African-American servicemen participating in this horrific event in world history. I close today, and Ruben, thanks again for allowing me to be on your podcast and your research that you're doing on stories that basically are major stories in our history books, and they're in our digital files of history forever. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful time. As uh, we reflect on uh, D-Day, the June 6th, uh, on this June 7th, the day after uh, the 75th anniversary of D-Day in June uh, of 2019. So thank you uh, for bringing uh, to light three great stories uh, of, of three uh, unique uh, and different events, you know, one more uh, national, one of course local to Syracuse, and another one that uh, you could you could say is a little more touching. Um, but thank you so much, and, and thank you for joining us as always. Uh, continue to listen to us on Fridays uh, as we bring in new episodes, uh, as we continue the, uh, the discussion and the journey to uh, enlightening and, and giving new uh, information about African Americans in all in all walks of life. Of course, right now, very much uh, ingrained in the military. Uh, but previously, before that, we've had stuff in in film and cinema, and we continue to to look forward to telling the stories of those that have not had their stories told, or their stories are very much have been buried, uh, you know, behind many uh, many books or behind uh, many walls for no one to hear. So continue to join us, and, and thank you to our guest, uh, the Dr. Roosevelt Rick Wright, Captain U.S. Navy. I've been your host, Ruben Wright, and we look forward to hearing from you, or look forward to you listening uh, next week. <laughs>